Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Good morning to you, wherever you are listening us from, and thanks for being part of the Odd Governance Show here at 101.9 High FM. I am delighted to share this space and time yet again with you, the beloved listener of this wonderful show, as we continue to shine spotlight on some of the very complex governance issues bedeviling both public and private sector organizations. Uh, This show is not merely about raising complex issues, but equally strives to present sets of solutions. It is on this basis that we invite thought leaders from both public and private sector organizations to reflect on their lived experiences and offer solutions as we proceed. In our last conversation, we were joined by Herman Mashaba uh, in his capacity as the leader of Action SA, and he gave us intriguing insights on what he considers dysfunctional government leadership, which resulted in the collapse of ESCOM. If you missed that particular show, or any of the show for that matter, not to worry, simply visit our website, which is www.highfm.com, download the podcast and share with us. As we kickstart the show, let me thank the technical producer of the show, uh, Vusima Singa and Harry. Thank you very much for putting the show together. And uh, to, to the delight of the listeners, I might add, in today's conversation, um, we are shining spotlight on effectiveness of education system, and I'll be joined by Professor Mary Metcalf, who is a director at PILA, which stands for Program to Improve Learning Outcomes. As you know, governance in education system is multi-layered and very complex. In part, the complexity of education system delivery is that it's done both at the national and the provincial level. There we, in this country, we have about 75 districts, over 440 teachers, 13 million learners, and 26,000 schools spread across the province. In addition, the education system carries the largest budget in in relation to GDP. This gives you a sense of how complex and multi-layered the education system is. Anyway, before you get to that very interesting and thought-provoking issues, I just want to weigh in on the energy crisis, which threatens uh, the economic prospects of recovery. We all know that rating agencies are already making adjustments based on the, on, based on the country's economic outlook, which is likely to be revised downward. What does this mean? You and I, we definitely know that. It means high cost of borrowing. It means less expenditure on capital infrastructure. It means high interest rates and it further undermines employment capabilities of the system. We all know that we're sitting close to 40% of unemployment rates. We've got about almost 18 to 19 million South Africans who are dependent on grants. So the picture is getting glimmer and glimmer. And the common denominator amongst others is obviously the electricity crisis, in this, which is self-inflicted. We've heard uh, from the president and the current CEO at ESCOM that most of these issues were self 
inflicted. The self-inflicted pain was how governments in his wisdom deferred maintenance of ESCOM because ESCOM would present a plan to say, look, as early as 1995, 96, and early 2000, look, because there's so much demand of electricity, we don't therefore need that the supply and demand don't match. This is what we need. But obviously the government in its wisdom decided to prioritize funding elsewhere. And the reality is that while the maintenance was not done by the book, ESCOM had also experienced exodus of technical skills, which further undermined the recovery uh, or, or refurbishments of the plants. And I've already indicated that it is common cause that without a reliable electricity, business simply cannot survive. They cannot meet their contractual obligations and at worst they'll be forced to tasking, which means more and more people are going to be retrenched, which means their unemployment rate it's lit, will definitely surpass the 40%. In my reflection, I want to pay particular focus on the overruns of the construction of Midobi and Kusina power station. We know that the construction of the two power stations began as early as 2007. By 2019, their cost had ballooned by almost 300 billion rents, reaching 145 billion for Midobi and 161 billion rents for Kusile. Talking overruns. I mean, if you were to build your own business, your own infrastructure, using your own money, can you allow this kind of environment? Can you allow this kind of overruns? I tell you what, even the billionaires are mindful of every cent that they spend. It is just mind-boggling to see the, the kinds of over, overruns that we have noted that I've just painted. And we're told that, um, you know, the middle people finally come upstream, you know, in 2024, after they, we have noticed back in 2021, generators that exploded resulting to damage and exorbitant cost in the reduction and, and the reduction of uh, generation capacity. So these are some of the issues in my mind, um, which, which, which further requires probing so that there's clarity of thought. It is not in this space that when we finally get to see what this national strategy is all about and we begin to answer specific questions. My assumption is that for both Minupi and Kusile, which is a case in point, is that we all understand the structural defects in all power stations, ones that were built by Parkit. Yeah, we understand that there might be structural defects because the infrastructure is ailing, it's old, it is expired or it's about to expire and so on and so forth. It simply does not make sense to notice structural defects from new power stations such as Midopi. And this in my mind begs the following questions. Which companies build these stations? Have these companies built similar power stations elsewhere in the world? If so, why are we not caring about structural defects and plant equipment resulting in explosions? Why engineers issued certificates of successful completion on the model which appear not to exist anywhere in the world? Who owns the IP of design of, of middle power plant? If it is owned by Oscom, good. But if the IP is not owned by Oscom, why taxpayers are forced to build, to foot the bill of an IP which does not belong to the state, an IP which will only benefit the owner? Because I can tell you now, if the owner, if the IP is not owned by the South African and we are paying for technical mess that we have seen, explosions and God knows what, 
if the IP is not owned by South Africa, so whoever owns this IP will obviously fix it and, you know, implement it elsewhere, which means, which suggests in Mama that South Africans were, were used as guinea pigs in this particular instance. As if it's not enough, we are told by the president that it will cost further 33 billion rents to complete Midupi. And again, this begs the question, are we going to derive value from the, from Midupi, given the energy mix strategy which is being contemplated by government? Is there a scientific basis as to why so much money is spent on Minopi? Is it not best spent channeling limited resources that we have in building new power station completely or channeling these this resources to energy mix, which, which the government is contemplating? So these are very complex issues and, and which ordinary South Africans definitely you know, getting their eyes and the pulling their hair over because getting deeper and deeper into a quagmire, fiscal quagmire. We already had fiscal quagmire, and there's no end in sight if these questions remain unanswered. Anyway, on that note, I'm going to just proceed, and I'm sure in future we'll definitely get the energy experts to really give us a deeper insight because I'm not an energy expert. I'm just an observer, and I all these kinds of questions so that we, we find individual or institutes that can uh, share some light on this issue. Anyway, as we proceed without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome Mary Metcalf, who is a director at PILO. PILO stands for a uh, program to improve learning outcomes. She's not a stranger to the show. Just a quick question, Mary, as we start. Uh, what is your overview of the education system, at least over the past five years? Um, are we making strides, positive strides? I would say that we are making strides. Give you what I would say are the indicators by which we can judge those strides. But I also think that the South Africans generally are so relieved to be over covid that we forget about the impacts on on education and the long-term effects on that. So I would say if what are the indicators of progress? We don't, if we start at the beginning of schooling, where we don't have a common assessment instrument across the whole of our primary schools, we do have some international indicators for example, the work that's done in maths and science and TIMS and the work that's done in reading, which was showing an improvement in the earlier grades than the National Senior Certificate in maths and in reading. That progress is important, but we start from such a low base. So while there may be improvement, it's an improvement from an abysmally low base. So the, the, it's about 40% of South African learners in grade four who can read for meaning. I'll check that figure so that I, that I don't give you incorrect figures. So if you cannot read for meaning in your home language by the time you're in grade four, it makes the rest of your education progression extremely difficult, which has multiple consequences. So yes, the situation is nowhere near where we need it to be. Secondly, we are making progress. And by the way, internationally, people recognize and are dubious that if you have massive gains, there has to be a very clear interrogation of those gains because education change is slow. 
And people who claim rapid progress, it's often shown to be that it isn't uh, methodologically correct in terms of the claim. So we must expect slow and gradual improvement and we have to start in the early grades. I'm going to stay with the early grades because everybody's preoccupation is with the NEC at the moment. The next thing that we need to know is that COVID had a huge impact, huge impact on learning to read and write in the early grades in 2020, 2021. I, I, I mustn't go into too much detail here, but there was a decline in reading ability. So are we seeing improvement? Yes, it's gradual um, improvement. COVID has set us back. The other indicator we have is, of course, the NEC results. And, you know, the DG of um, the Department of Basic Education presents really detailed, detailed, detailed work. I, I wrote an article for Sunday Times on the weekend and looked at things quite closely. But even as I was just glancing through his preparation, I've been glancing through his report for my presentation, there was something that I hadn't seen which just, I think, is an indication. So there's a certain number of learners who write um, the National Senior Certificate, and then we talk about success in percentages. So we say 80% passed, 70% passed. But, you know, this year was the largest group of um, matriculants ever. So when you talk 70% or 80% passed of what? So this year it was 80% passed. Last year it was 76% passed. But because the number was so high, this is what really astonished me this morning. So if we look at um, the number of learners who passed matric, the National Senior Certificate in the year 2000, it was 200 and 280,000. 2009, 334,000. This year we had 580,000 young people passing matric. For those 580,000 young people, it's an individual joy and celebration, but there are more learners passing at a higher level of quality. We've got a long way to go, yes. Absolutely. You're raising very pertinent issues, which I think we just need to hone in and get more clarity from your end. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. This is Beyond Governance, and my name is Numa Tembele. I am joined by Mary Metcalf, a director at PILO. We are probing very pertinent questions around the effectiveness of the education system. Uh, before we took that break, Mary gives us indication on what she considers positive strides that has been achieved. 
One obviously that she pointed out to is the lack of assessment. She moved the premise that most learners um, who are unable to read for meaning in their own home languages is a big challenge. She also um, indicated that, you know, countries or institutions that uh, project robust uh, change, uh, we need to be very careful about those because education change is very slow and gradual. And there are issues that she pointed out that we need to be and that we need to pay particular attention to is the impact of COVID on learning. And that obviously has addressed uh, or hampered the extent to which learners are able to read and write. And last but not least, she gave us a good sense of the number of matriculants that have passed, comparatively speaking, ending of 2022, which resulted in 580 students that passed matric. So she, this is a glimpse, the glimpse of what Mary has shared with us. Uh, Mary, before we took that break, um, I just wanted to uh, get a sense from your end in terms of the assessment. You started saying by saying we don't have a common assessment instrument. And the fact, um, obviously, we use the PELS of this World International Instrument. Why is it that we don't have a common assessment? Is it work in progress? Where are we? So the DBE did introduce an across-the-country national assessment called the annual national assessment the last annual national assessment which was done it started off with a foundation phase and then they did it also at grades i think four and nine did give a common sense across the country of how we were doing and i can we can look at at the results from that the problem is when you introduce an assessment that every school every teacher every learner has to be involved in it takes time away from teaching because it's a massive exercise for that to be distributed you know the matric exam as you're aware is like months and months of preparation and management teachers began to push back and say you are taking valuable time for something that isn't helping us we get results we know our learners and we knew that before why did you take away time that we could use for teaching and learning and so there was a bit of a hold of between the department and the annual national assessment hasn't been done since 2015. But the DBE is doing something which I think is very sensible, which is sampling. So they, I haven't seen the results of that yet. They began during the course of last year and they're sampling assessments across the school in terms of going in with a standard assessment. So everybody does the same assessment across all of the schools, different languages, urban, rural, across the country, but on a sample basis. And that will provide us with information. The second reason that sometimes um, assessments during the course of grade three, six, nine, uh, whenever we do it, is that it should result and have the consequence of support that follows the understanding. And that's something that we also need to refine in the system. If we say to teachers, we're going to do this assessment and it's going to help us understand how to support you better, I think it would also be better received. Well, thank you very much for that uh, insight. I think it's quite useful. We do understand um, 
how um, educators felt that um, that assessment dispensed by government was taking away time from them instead of, of really spending some time on, on teaching. But a follow-up question um, that you've alluded to is how there seems to be, well, this is a general view that I've picked up, there seems to be preoccupation by the education system on the on the metric. And we have seen the number, amount of resources poured uh, in metric, there's boot camp, there's summer school, there's winter school, there's all manner of interventions, you know, pegged at the top. Surely more and more investment need to be spent in early childhood because, I mean, by the time you get your learners um, in grade 12, it's relatively too late. That's one and two. We know that most of the learners, metric is the almost like as, as a the pinnacle because there's no progression beyond metric. And when you look at the amount of learners that have been progressed by the system who get blocked at the metric level, are indications of the need to focus more energy on the early childhood as opposed to your higher grade. Your, your take on that, Prof? It's a wonderful question because when I talk to officials across the country, in districts, talk to school principals, many of them are saying, we spend so much time, as you say, with the catch-ups, the camps. If only we invested, for example, the same effort into grades um, 8 and 9 and lower down. So let me, before we come to your second part of that question, which is about early childhood, I'm often worried that grade 8 and 9 is completely, relatively under-invested in. You know, we have a structure of an education system which has three phases. We have the foundation phase, intermediate phase, senior phase, and the FET phase. The FET phase is grade 10 to 12. That's where all the intensive effort goes into preparing for this very competitive approach to the NEC. Now, the senior phase is one year in primary school two years in grade eight and nine in the secondary school. And I would say that the heart of improving our results in the NSC is to treat the grade eights and nines with much more attention to understand that these are young adolescents who really are struggling with that transition, that many of us can remember how difficult it is. And that investment in their learning is building the results for the next few years. But as you've said, it goes even further back. It's quality in the primary school. It's enormous energy into building confidence in reading in your home language in the first instance, the foundation phase. And that is built on the hugely important area of ECD. And actually a lot is happening in the ECD space. Government has introduced grade R. Some of the research results on how effective that is are interesting if we've got time, but it's positive except that inequalities, as is always the case in our country, um, you can see in the effects. There's in the new amendments to the education laws, BELA, Basic Education Laws Amendments Act, they are increasing, lowering the age at which young people are entering the system. And the big debate about ECD is how we strengthen the modes of provision. Do young 
children at the age of four need to be going into the formal setting of school or are they best supported in community-based um, ECD centers? That is the big debate, I think, for this year and for the next few years. How do we strengthen those early years? And of course, there's lots of literature that shows that it goes all the way back to adequate nutrition from the first year of life, the first, I think they call it the first 180 days of a child's life lays the basis of learning forever. So the preoccupation, I wouldn't say of the DBE, but I would say the preoccupation of the country with the NEC results. Every time at this time of the year, because I see it as a public service, I do so much media work. But that's because it's a season for education for much of the year, many people don't think about education in the media. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that, Isla Prof. And you raised some of the very pertinent issues. Your argument is that investment in grade eight to nine is critical and it is one phase of the education system that is experiencing underinvestment. Perhaps maybe the bigger question, because as we all know, education uh, system is there are a lot of actor groups. One actor group that is quite vociferous from time to time is the teacher unions. Are you able to perhaps maybe give us a sense of your observations based on how teacher unions uh, um, look at grade 9 and 10 as a pocket or potentially beneficial area which could enhance the quality of outputs at metric level, what is the position of the unions based on your conversations, corridor conversation, official conversation? I think our teacher unions are one of the greatest assets that we have in the education system. And I say that because the teacher unions are closest to the ground in terms of representing their members, which means understanding the context of their members. They are educators who are driven by a passion to improve education. And in any conversation I have with the unions, I am always enriched by their insights, their understanding and their commitment. I can't recall. uh, Yeah, I think I can. I was going to say I can't recall specific um, conversations about grade eight and nine. But in fact, When I think about talking to union members at school level, at provincial level, there is a real recognition that all of the focus of resources on the the class of the National Senior Certificate Year needs to be better distributed across the province. And I would say unions, from my conversations with them, are concerned about ECD passionately, primary school passionately, reading, as well as all of the grades eight and nine all the way through. Absolutely, Prof. I mean, it's quite interesting uh, to hear that there's a very great appreciation of teacher unions, particularly in those particular areas that you've alluded to. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed and strategically on point. 
It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Nimrod Mbele, our host of Beyond Governance Show. I am joined by Mary Metcalf, and we are addressing issues pertinent to the effectiveness of education system. Before we took the break, Mary gave us a view as to which grades in her view are experiencing underinvestments, and that is grade eight and nine. The supposition there is that if education system were to focus on grade nine by way of putting the resources which are commensurate or similar to those that are channeled at grade 12, we're more likely to experience a quality outputs at metric and beyond. Um, she also gave us a good insight on the role of teacher unions insofar as uh, supporting uh, some of these initiatives, particularly uh, where where resources ought to be. There, there seems to be a broader consensus of where the country has to go, where, judging by how Mary responded to these questions. But the elephant in the room is the quality of education. The reason I'm asking the quality of education, because yes, that, you know, Mary said to us, it is not education system that is preoccupied with metric. It is the society. We are pushing, advocating for, impliedly or explicitly pushing for, for the education system to be preoccupied with metric. And I suppose we need to reconfigure, we need to re-our thinking because that's not where it ought to be, particularly when you look at the quality of metric. The question that I have for Mary is, I mean, the last time I checked, there's about 40 to 45 percent of first-year students at universities that have done well, who don't, who actually fail when they get to university, which begins to ask the question about the quality and the extent to which they, the system readies students or learners to be actively or to be active or nuance the approach to learning in higher education. Your take on that, Mary? I'd like to come back after looking at the higher education question to some of the misconceptions about quality in the NSC. But let's start with with higher education. You know, there is always, there is a huge set of challenges for young people proceeding from school into the tertiary environment. A lot of it is social. A lot of it is adjusting. I've been working with a young man um, from KZN who was one of the top performers in the province a few years ago, went through all of that glorious prominence, went to university and could not cope. And it was partly academic. It was also social. It was also displacement. It was also a different environment. So first of all, we need to look at the complex set of factors. We need to look at a materialistic culture generally in society and how it affects 
um, students at secondary level and what their priorities might be. The second thing I think about um, higher education at the moment is that we've seen massive expansion, huge pressures on universities in terms of resources with growing enrollments and perhaps fewer resources, more pressure on academics, large classes. Then there's the question for me of um, the transition in terms of of independence of inquiry at high school level. And many schools, I think, in the basic education um, sphere, in pushing for best and best results, teachers are probably, despite the rigors of the question papers, doing much more coaching, feeding, and not providing enough opportunities for learners to do their own research. And by the way, that's another inequality and social factor. How many learners are actually having access to libraries rather than reliance on a single textbook? And then to be thrust into, here's a problem, go to the library, is challenging. Now, I think that your question makes me realize I need to do a bit of catching up myself with what the current research is saying about why learners fail. But what I've offered you is a range of factors that I think are worth perhaps even listening to to what your own listeners say to you about the reasons they fail. Thank you very much for that. I mean, because this is something that um, most people put forward which begin to, you know, question the extent to which the quality of NSE results and that transition. I mean, I, I think your observations are quite on point, particularly when you're looking at the extent to which adjustment is being done or learners, the extent to which learners have been prepared to adjust into a completely different environment where you, you know, you are, you are now independent. You now need, you are assumed to be independent. There's no one who's going to bother you about your assignments, your tests. You have mm-hmm. to do those mm-hmm. things. One particular like is the transition to what we referred to as transition to independence of inquiry and which is lacking. I might be completely wrong here. Um, but obviously, that also presupposes that learners' uh, independence and the quest for independence into inquiry is backed up by access to material, either the um, libraries and what have you. And other people might argue that, no, I mean, that we've got enough. We can't paint all the learners with the same paintbrush. Some, you know, when you look at metropolitan uh, provinces, the learners have access to these things. There's access to the internet. There's access to uh, seminars, webinars, and all sorts of stuff, which begins to say there is a need to focus on these social uh, issues to better prepare learners for life outside uh, NSC because NS, uh, DHEAD or, or higher education is a completely different ball game. Mm-hmm. Um, because nobody spoon feeds you, feeds you, nobody pushes you, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole lot of cultural um, adjustments that needs to happen at university level, which in part could account for higher percentage of those learners who have done exceptionally well in metric. But when they get to higher education environment, they seem to battle. People who become who lose their confidence, who lose their belief that they are worthy because they have not done well, 
have a much bigger problem in terms of proceeding with the normal tasks of life, of interacting in society, making a contribution. And the greatest gift we can give to young people, whatever their level of ability, is a sense of self-esteem, a sense that they can do something and that they can engage with people adaptively and be part of society, an overemphasis on academic performance and the failure associated with that can be very damaging if we don't hold young people with a sense of their worth. Absolutely. One critical issue that you raised, I wanted to ponder this before we take a break. It is, you have said to us, there has been massive expansion for universities to absorb more and more learners. Uh, and again, this falls into the whole scenario where universities are seen as critical uh, institution of hardening, uh, whereas FPT colleges, in a real, in a nutshell, particularly when you're looking of looking at portable skills, employment opportunities that could be created by the FPT graduate, um, why is it that the system is again? Is it a system or is it us as citizens? pushing the education system to be more preoccupied with universities, even if you know that university, not all faculties in universities breeds learners or students or graduates that can fit into the world of work. Point on that question uh, as we take a break. We'll come back in a second. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance, and I'm joined by Mary Malkov. We have a very intriguing conversation, which I certainly hope that you find fascinating and enriching in so many ways. The thrust of our conversation is about effectiveness of education system. Before we took that break, I wanted Mary to give us a sense of why this system is, again, preoccupied with fostering a culture of universities uh, as opposed to uh, fostering a culture of technical, vocational technical colleges, which when you look at the globe, countries such as Germany, Finland, Norway, Australia, and so on and so forth, are where they are because they have focused their energies on Tibet colleges, so to speak. The Tibet colleges, the Hanleys of this world, the Hong Kong of this world, have given us a very good sense of how to become competitive, you know, and begin to be more creative by virtue of spending more resources and encouraging the shift in the mindset that universities are not all in all. Universities... And I think for me, the university's uh, lifespan has expired. That's my personal view. We need to pay more and more attention to technical and vocational education because that's where the bread and butter of most graduates will be. And yet we have more and more support for universities 
as opposed to t- technical colleges. Mary, your sense on that particular issue, why is it that TVET colleges are treated as a Cinderella's of, or continue to be treated as Cinderella's of higher education? We've got an imbalance between universities and um, enrollment in the technical vocational education and training colleges, which we summarize as TVET. It's government wants to grow participation in TVET, but universities are now, they double the number of the enrollment of TVET. And then this is what I thought, you know, if we talk about aspirations and esteem, There's a sense that the lawyers, the accountants, the doctors are aspirational occupations. And I'm going to go back to apartheid and the limited range of occupations in which the majority of uh, most of our people, African people in particular, were allowed to participate. So I'm going to look at the subjects that are available in TVET colleges, and I'm going to just randomly read a set of qualifications or courses, okay? Not qualifications, but courses within different sectors. And I'm going to ask you to think about how many young African people in particular would say that they know people working in this area, that someone in their family understands this area. And that's, I think, the, the, the critical question. So, for example, in civil engineering and building and construction, how many young people have, know anyone doing construction planning, know anyone doing concrete structures? In the area of drawing office practice, how many young people do you know who know anything about civil and structural steelwork detailing, engineering graphics and design, drawing office procedures and techniques, in electrical infrastructure, in electrical systems and construction, electronic control and digital electronics, renewable energy technologies, in engineering and related design. Does anybody ever say, I want to do a course, engineering fabrication, fitting and turning, refrigeration practice, I can go on and on. So I would say that there is not enough understanding in society generally, of the depth of specificity in occupational areas of what's available in the TVET colleges. And most of the aspirations are focused on what has historically been the professions that have provided intellectual leadership in the black community in particular. The more we understand that welding and principles of computer programming, all of those areas are viable courses of study that can make a contribution to society, we might start reversing this trend. It's not the only factor, but I think it may be significant that it's not part of aspirations because we have a very narrow set of expectations of what post-school education and training will provide. So my question to you is, do you agree with me? Look, I agree with you, Mary, in that particularly in an African community where I come from, um, there is very limited understanding of the TVET system or individuals who have graduated from the technical background who have made it big in the technical background. So generally speaking, you are correct and I agree with you uh, because when you look at when you unpack engineering, uh, there's so many fields within engineering uh, which most people 
you know, don't know. But be that it may, is that not the responsibility of government from advocacy point of view? Because I promise you, I've not seen any adverts on the highways, the byways, the newspaper articles that says TVET is the way to go. Yeah, I would love to see more advocacy. I agree with you. You know, absolutely. Because if we're to see more and more uh, advocacy, you know, publications, adverts, and what TV that says, TV college is the way to go. Because the battle is in the mind. Because everyone wants to be advocates, UK, Stellan Bosch, and so on and so forth. And and within, within those universities, some faculties are are not really in a position to create opportunities for those graduates. And 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 that's my biggest gripe, frankly speaking, because the systems, you know, set these kids to fail. You you you've got your junior degree and and you can't proceed, and you're not employable because there's so many of you with the similar qualifications. And if you're not working, you're also competing with those that come from Tibet College because we have some Tibet colleges that, that offers humanity. Why on earth Tibet colleges offers uh, secretarial courses? It just does not make sense. It, it suggests that we don't know what we're doing. Well, I wouldn't agree with you. This must be my last um comment because I've got to, to go sadly because I'm enjoying the conversation. Is that all of the areas in the Tibet colleges are important in society. So, for example, there's hospitality, very important component of, of our society. There's management, there's marketing, there's office administration, primary health, there's uh, safety, process plan. So even secretarial work, we mustn't be uh, underestimate what is required in terms of being an effective office administrator and to have a qualification in office administration, which includes understanding business practice and understanding data processing and applied accounting and those areas of an office administration course positions a young person to be able to enter the workplace with greater skills than someone who comes from the general education provided in NSC. Absolutely, Prof. Look, I'm aware that you're going to have to jump. It has been an absolute pleasure. I seen, and I'm certainly been, my, my eyes have been wider open and I, that of the listener as well. We have begun to greatly nuance our thinking and our approach based on your very intriguing insights that you've shared with us on this glorious morning. It was lovely to talk to you. I really did enjoy it. We should do it again so that education isn't just a January thing, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, Prof. We'll certainly take, I'll certainly take you on that. All right. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you, Namrat. Absolutely. There you are. That was Mary McCarthy, a director at Pillow, giving us a very uh, interesting observation on the effectiveness of education system. We all know how complex the education system is in the country. And what my reflection points here is that we need to be very wary of any country that suggests, you know, positive movement. If the needle of the transitional education system appears to be too fast, we need to be wary because education in its nature is a very slow pace. And we obviously have to grapple with a whole lot of issues, uh, infrastructure issues, curriculum issues, resource issues, and so on and so forth. 
all these issues come to bear, uh, and in terms of what happens in front, in what happens in the classroom level. We're going to have to leave it here. It has been absolutely a pleasure having you. Once again, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll let's do this again. Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.